If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. <clears throat> this will be a, uh, a little, little more challenging in the approach that we have to take uh, in part because uh, Genesis 10.1 ought to be read all the way through 11.9. Right, so what I'm going to do before we begin to walk through this section of Scripture is I'm going to read a portion of chapter 10 so that we can get a feel for what's going on in Genesis 10, and then I'm going to read Genesis 11.1 through 9. So Genesis 10, verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, and Ripheth, and Togarmar, or Togarmah. Right? Give me a break. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Ketim and Dodanim, from these the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And then if you notice verse 6 moves from the sons of Japheth to the sons of Ham. And from verse 6 all the way down to verse 20 you have a delineation of the descendants of Ham all the way until it ends in verse 20 with these are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. And then you start in verse 21 with Shem and you have a description or an account of the descendants of Shem all the way down to verse 31, these are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer.
Father, open up your truth to us now, we ask, in such a way that we are able to move beyond any idle curiosity or any mere academic questioning, but that we would see and understand that even this is part of your revelation to us so that we would gain insight into your will and your ways. Help us to see how even this portion of Scripture finds its ultimate fulfillment and completion in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in your plan of redemption. And give us gratitude for being privileged by your Holy Spirit to have already begun to experience this in our lifetime. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 10 and 11, 1 through 9, ought to be read together in one sense because, as, as you can see as you go through chapter 10... With the genealogy of Noah's three sons, each genealogy, each of the three sons have a listing of sons and people groups that descended from them, and at the end of each genealogy for the three sons, the author closes it up or closes that section up with a statement that these are the sons of so-and-so, or these are these people according to their lands, everyone according to his language. There's something different that has taken place in chapter 10 inexplicably. Up until this point in Genesis, anytime we've looked at the way that, uh, that Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel or the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth, as we look through, we have no mention of any kind of division between humanity. We have no real mention of any kind of city-states or nation groups let alone any multiplicity of languages, you get rather the picture in the first nine verses of Genesis that from beginning to end, at least up until chapter 10, the whole earth was just sort of one large family, yes, being able to trace their lines back to different forebears, but one large family working off of one language, filling the earth. And then we come to chapter 10 and we find that all of a sudden the descendants from Noah's sons are being marked out according to very distinct people groups in regions of the earth, in different places, with different languages, with different organizations, and we don't know what to account for that. Chapter 11 comes in and shines the light back on chapter 10 to say, now here is how all of this came to be. Sort of like the way that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 work. Genesis 1 sort of gives you an overview of the seven days of creation, and then Genesis 2 comes back and says, now let's look a little bit more closely as to how, in some of the particulars, Genesis 1 came to be. I think that's what's going on here with Genesis 10 and 11, 1 through 9. You have the observation, the delineation of these different people groups and nations and different languages, and then chapter 11 comes on and says, now let's look and see how it was that this came about. So on the one hand, we ought to be able to look at each of these sections on their own terms. Chapter 10 has some things to tell us, otherwise it wouldn't be here in the Scriptures. Chapter 11 has things to tell us on its own, but then they also functioning together as Act 1 and Act 2, so to speak, have something to tell us in unison with one another. So let's start with Genesis chapter 10, and let me make just a couple observations because we'll spend the bulk of our time in chapter 11. 
The first thing to keep in mind is that because chapter 10 comes after chapter 9, hold on, I know that blows your mind, all right? Chapter 10 comes after chapter 9, and chapter 9 is the chapter that is, giving, that is given to this blessing that is pronounced on Noah and his descendants after the judgment of the flood. So Noah and his family come off the ark, and the Lord says to them, just as he said to Adam and Eve, remember another blessing command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he says that again for a second time in, verse, uh, in chapter 9, verse 7. And what chapter 10 does in part then is it shows the outworking of this blessing. God has blessed everyone who descends from Noah's family with the ability to be fruitful, to thrive, to multiply. And that's what's taking place in chapter 10. So at the very least then, one of the things that Genesis 10 demonstrates to us and reveals to us is that because of God's universal blessing pronounced in chapter 9, everyone that we read about in chapter 10 in some shape or fashion is connected to that universal blessing. The blessing of God, in other words, rests in some measure on all the nations of the earth. God is kind, God is generous, God provides, God protects, God lives in, in many ways, big and small, for all people, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Here, the fact that each of Noah's sons can be the forebears of nations and people groups is itself an indication that the blessing that God had pronounced over them in Genesis chapter 9 is, in fact, coming to fruition. And because that blessing is being fulfilled through Noah's sons and descendants, one of the things that we're encouraged to remember or to be mindful of is that from the very beginning, there is, in one sense, a unity that the world enjoys because all of us rest under the blessing of God. One of the ways that that's demonstrated in chapter 10 is through one of the infamous Old Testament inclusios. Notice at the very beginning of chapter 10, in verse 1, now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. The sons were born to them after the flood. And then it goes through and it gives all the descendants. And then the chapter ends... In verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies. In other words, if you get lost in the details, if you get lost in all the different people groups and where they're located and where they're found and the different languages that they have, don't lose sight of the fact that ultimately all of these people in chapter 10 can trace their history back to Noah and his sons. And because they can trace their history back to Noah and his sons, they can trace themselves back to God's universal blessing declared over his creation and over all of humanity. This is one of the reasons why racism and bigotry is so repugnant in terms of a biblical worldview and a biblical perspective. It's because there is no way that you can read Scripture and assume or infer that there are some people who get the grace and mercy of God in a general universal way, but other people who are just undeserving of it and who never get to see the kindness of God. They're 
unworthy of any kindness that God would give. Genesis 10 goes a long way to say, no matter how you trace your line, one way or the other, you're going to come back to one of those three sons, and each one of those three sons father their genealogical lines under the goodwill and the blessing of God. God does not love Americans more than He loves Mexicans. He does not love North Americans more than He loves South Americans or Europeans or Asians or Africans. He loves, He blesses, He guides, He sustains all men, all people, all nations of the earth because they are all His children and His image bearers. The fact that nations can multiply and can flourish is itself a sign and an indication that God's blessing still rests with His creation. It should shock us and it should arrest our attention when we see that there is a group or a nation that is not flourishing because of evil or injustice. That is not the way God intended it to be. But even though chapter 10 shows to us that God's blessing, universal blessing from chapter 9 is bearing fruit in the spread, in the multiplication of descendants from Noah's sons, it also clues us into the fact that there's some, that something, in spite of God's blessing, something is not quite right. Because at the end of every genealogical line at the end of every group that traces itself back to one of Noah's sons, we're told, now these are the people who existed according to their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. That's 10.5. In 10.20, these are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Chapter 10.31 these are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. Do you see what's happening? On the one hand, there's universal blessing being enjoyed by all of these people groups, which leads us to believe that in one sense there is a unity that mankind enjoys because we all exist as God's creatures, God's image bearers. On the other hand, something is not quite right because all of these image bearers who prior to chapter 10 seem to exist as one large family with one common language spreading out gradually over the earth, now all of a sudden they're being segmented and divided and kept apart from each other. There are divisions in the people groups. How does that happen? Chapter 11. Chapter 11 breaks down into essentially two parts. The first part is an account of what it is that mankind does or plans or intends to do. And the second part is a record of God's response, His intervention to those plans. So how did, how did all the people of the earth who started 
sharing in the universal blessing of God in some sort of way unified from one common ancestor, one common family, how did we go to being multiple, distinguishable, separated, distant families and communities and nations? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. There it is. Chapter 10 is not how it always was. Before that, there was a time when everyone spoke the same language, and there was the ease and convenience of being able to communicate freely with each other. Verse 2, it came about as they, mankind, journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used the brick for stone. Verse 4 is the key. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Let's build a city, and let's build a tower that reaches up to heaven, and let's make a name for ourselves. It's eerily similar to the motivation that we saw in Genesis chapter 3, where the man and the woman are offered this forbidden fruit because if you eat from it, you can be like God. You can discern for yourself between what is good and what is evil. I want to be like God. I want to be my own person, my own man, my own woman. Therefore, this is what I will do. Here in similar fashion, that seems to be part of the motivation of the people here in building a city and building a tower that reaches to heaven. They want to reach the heights where only God sits. Let's make a tower that reaches to the heavens. Let's break into God's realm and God's domain. We can do it if we put our minds to it, if we join together, if in this unity that we enjoy as families of the earth, we can make something of ourselves, we can make a tower that will usher us into the very presence of God. Why should we be limited to merely crawling around down here when there are all these other heights that we can reach together? Do you see? And part and parcel of that, the idea that you're going to build a city and that you're going to make a tower that breaks into heaven itself, is that when people see what it is that we've accomplished, what we have done, we will be famous. People will know who we are. They'll be able to see our city and see our tower from miles away, and they'll know, ah, you know who that is. Those are those brilliant, ingenious, godlike, heaven invading men and women who have really made something of themselves. Do you hear this? In other words, the problem that is going on in Genesis chapter 11 is that rather than humanity living together, working together in communion with one another, most importantly, in communion with 
their creator and king, what they want to do is they want to use the strength of their numbers, they want to use their unity as a way to declare and break away and have assert their independence from God. We can build a city, we can build a community, we can build a life on our own. God wants us to spread and to multiply and to fill the earth. We think it would be better if we huddle up here and we pool our resources together. Also, don't miss the fact that for all of the pride and the arrogance and the desire to be autonomous, not needing God anymore, notice that even this pride and this uh, ingenuity that these people have betray a certain amount of insecurity and even fear. Go back to the text in chapter 11 and look at what they say. In verse 4, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. If we don't do this, we'll be scattered. If we stay and we build a city and a tower, we'll be safe, we'll be together. Isn't it interesting... That at the same time that you have in this passage a display of man in his self-confidence, his pride, his seeming independence from God, there is also lurking beneath the surface deep insecurity and fear. You, You read stuff on science and technology, you see this all the time. Some of the things that we are desirous to be able to accomplish, let's just say through medical science. We want to increase life expectancy. Why? Why? Yeah. Isn't this life hard enough? We we want to extend that and have more hard times for another 10 years or so? Or... Is it in the self-confidence and the sense that we can do whatever we set our minds to, does it reveal that what man fears is death? I don't like to think about death. Is there a way that I can work around it? Can I avoid death? Can I put it off 10 more years with a pill? Can I monkey around with genes and DNAs and can we build a super race of people that are impervious to disease and sickness and death can be a thing of the past? What if we could find a way to have our minds built into a computer so that even when our bodies fail, we still continue to exist in some sort of sentient way? Do you hear that? That's the talk of people who do not like recognizing their finite limitations. That's talk, those are plans, those are aspirations of people who fear 
what those limitations mean and who want to make themselves the authors and the masters of their own fate. It stands to reason then that one of the things that God's people ought to be asking themselves, especially God's people who live in the prosperous, affluent, technologically advanced West, we ought to be asking ourselves, what is it that we're, that we're building? What is it that we're hoping to achieve and accomplish as we pool all of our resources and our ingenuity together? And when you look at what it is that you hope we will be able to accomplish or provide, what does that reveal about your deepest desires and your deepest fears? What do you aspire to build and to create? And what does that reveal about your heart? Do you wake up in the morning thinking, I've got to do something significant. I've got to do something that makes my mark, that makes people know that I'm here and I'm significant and I mean something. I can't be a nobody. I can't just be someone who fades into the backdrop. Is that what drives you in school? Is that what drives you in the workplace? Is that what drives you in the neighborhood on the little league fields? Got to make a name for ourselves. Merit's got to mean something. Why? Why does it have to mean something? If you go back to Genesis chapter 9, when Noah pronounces his blessing on Shem... Did you catch from, I think it was last week, right, that we were in chapter 9? Did you catch the way that Noah phrased that? Blessed be the God of Shem. The blessing pronounced on Shem and what it foreshadowed was that the greatest blessing and significance of Shem and his line were going to be the fact that they were attached to God. Is that where you find your significance? Or are you busy trying to build something that's going to matter in the long run? By the way, it doesn't matter what you try to build. It's always going to be insignificant. It's never going to be enough. In fact, there's irony and even a touch of humor in this because these people are talking about building this city and a tower that reaches up to heaven... What does God do in verse 5? Does God wake up one morning and say, holy cow, where'd this tower come from? Bursting into my throne room. What does God do in verse 5? He goes down to look at this great tower. In other words, this is God. What? What is that speck down there? Right? Breaking out the magnifying. Oh, look at those guys. Aren't they cute? <laughs> they think that they can get up here. They think that they can exalt themselves. They think that they can build for themselves a name and a reputation and renown. From a human perspective, the tower, who knows how tall it may have been before God came in and intervened. But the point is, as they're building this tower that they intend to reach to the heights, it's still so small that God has to go down to see it. How good is your building going to be 
if at the end of the day, in light of eternity, held up to an infinite, majestic God, he has to look at it with a magnifying glass to be able to see the speck. We're setting about trying to build cities and towers and reputations that we think are going to reach the skies and exalt us. And they're nothing but specks that are just going to be blown away in the last day. Christians succumb to this, right? We swim in this kind of mentality, in this kind of spirit every day that we can make of ourselves whatever it is that we want to be. And if we don't make of ourselves whatever it is that we aspire to be, well, it must be because either A, we're not trying hard enough, or B, someone is keeping us from reaching our potential. You're finite. So rather than using the unity that is enjoyed by all of humanity for the filling and the fruitfulness of the earth, to obey the command, to enjoy God's blessing, you have people who are using the unity that they have shared under the blessing of God, and they're using that blessing as an opportunity to declare their independence and their separation from God. We don't want to be in need. We don't want to be dependent. And so the Lord comes down, and in order to stop this self-exalting, idolatrous project, He confuses the languages. And when the languages are confused and you can't communicate with one another, the building has to stop. Two things we might consider from this, at least from the vantage point in which we sit going further. Number one, in light of Genesis 10 and 11, on the one hand, while we say all the nations of the earth exist because of the blessing of God, we still need to come to chapter 11 and say, and yet all the nations exist, they have their origin in sin and rebellion. Right? If God did not have to come and intervene, if He did not have to judge by confusing the languages, you wouldn't have people groups and ethnicities and nations the way that we do now. You would have one large family working off of the same language, communicating freely with each other day in and day out. The fact that we don't see that is a reminder to us every day of our sin and our rebellion. It's worked into our nature. We can't escape it. We saw this in Genesis chapter 9. God wipes the earth clean, and before we're even out of chapter 9, when God has pronounced universal blessing, what do we find? We find one of Noah's descendants being placed under a curse. Chapter 10 and 11, even though we all enjoy the blessing of God, over his creation, rather than using the blessing of God and the unity that he afforded mankind, we take the blessing of God and we use it for selfish, prideful, rebellious ends. 
But, number two, although the nations, even as they exist today, are a sign of sin and judgment, the nations are also a sign of mercy and blessing. Look at what the Lord says back in Genesis chapter 11, verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Verse 9, Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. We're told twice that the Lord intentionally scatters these people, in part by confusing their languages. Do you remember what happened after the fall in Genesis 3? Where God says, behold, man has become like one of us knowing good and evil, and unless or to prevent him from reaching out and taking from the tree of life and living forever in this condition, in this state, we're going to exile him from the garden. In chapter 3, in other words, the fact that God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden is, yes, a sign, an act of judgment, but it's also a way for God to restrain sin from getting worse. In Genesis chapter 11, God looks and sees the evil, prideful, arrogant ends that people are using their unity to accomplish these things. And God says, in order to prevent that, we will judge, confuse the languages, and scatter them. Instead of keeping them together, God separates them so that the sin of their pride and rebellion cannot deepen and metastasize. It's actually an act of mercy that God does this. What would have happened if the Lord had just let them live according to their own whims and devices? Who knows? What kind of judgment would God have to bring down? He's already used a universal flood, universal earthquake, universal disease. Would He have to wipe out the earth again? Maybe. He could have let it run its course and then just wiped everyone out again, but instead he says, no, we're not going to get to that point. Christians of all people, we ought to be growing in our conviction and in our belief that the mercy of God is over all of his works. All. When he disciplines you, when he disciplines me, when he brings judgment, even when he disciplines us, even when he judges the world, he does it for our good. This is one of the reasons why running from repentance when the Lord is working on you and when he's making you miserable in your sin is not only a futile thing to do, it is so foolish The Lord is bringing misery and woe on your sin so that you would turn and know life. 
the last thing that you want God to do is to let you go. And what you begin to see as you go through Scripture is that what looks like a, a, a vague little hint of God's kindness, in order to make sure that they don't continue to aspire to these sorts of things, we're going to separate them. We're going to put them in different portions and corners of the earth. We're going to try to dilute this concentrated wickedness and rebellion. We're going to dilute it and spread it out. You start to see that this is not just something that hints at us, in chapter 11, but it starts to become a recurring theme all the way through Scripture. You have your Bibles with you? Three passages I want to look at just briefly. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. In light of Genesis 10 and 11, who did the scattering of the peoples that became the scattering of nations? God did. God confused the languages. God separated them. God gave them their locations. Look at what Deuteronomy 32, 8 says. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man, you hear Genesis 10 and 11 there? He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. That's a very curious statement. We don't have time to delve into it now. We will come back to it over and over again when we hit the patriarch, starting with Abraham. But let me just give you a little taste or a teaser of what I think this is in reference to. In other words, when we read... Genesis 10 and 11, and we see God scattering the people, and we read in chapter 10 that this group got this location, this group got that location, this is not something that's being done haphazardly. This is God sovereignly ruling and reigning over the nations and spreading them out over the earth with the full knowledge of what He's going to do to bring His redemption to these nations in the nation of Israel. This is not haphazard. He is not just, it's like a cue ball hitting, breaking in pool, right? Where everything just scatters and who knows where it's going to turn up. But God apportions the nations and he spreads them out and he says, I want to set the table and get it ready for what I'm going to do with this man Abraham and his family and the nation of Israel. I'm going to get the world ready for the blessing of salvation that's going to come through this nation. And the way to do that is I've got to separate them from each other. If they're not reminded of their need, of their fragility, of their dependence, they're not going to be hungry for salvation. This is for their good. He set, he scattered the nations according to the number of the sons of Israel so that Israel then would be primed and ready to be able to bring the salvation of God to all of these nations that he scattered. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Verses 26 and 27. Listen to what Paul says, Acts 17, 26 and 27. 
and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why? Verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Do you hear that? Did you read that? Why does God scatter the nations in chapter 10 and 11 of Genesis? He does it so that in scattering them, they have a greater opportunity to recognize their need and to grope for the answer to their need, which is God himself. It is an act of mercy and grace that even in judgment, God still opens up a way for blessing and salvation. And then last, but certainly not least, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. See if you don't hear a little bit of Genesis 10 and 11 in these verses. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After these things... I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The mercy and the grace of God wins out over judgment and cursing. What starts in Genesis 10 and 11 as a sign of the division of the judgment of God on prideful, rebellious humanity, the scattering of the nations, the speaking of multiple languages as a constant reminder of God needing to put us in our place, of God needing to distance us from one another, at the very end, little biblical theology for you here, works itself out to be part of one grand storyline where God says, this looks like a sign of judgment. I'm going to show you that my blessing, my way, my will wins out even over judgment so that blessing covers judgment. He doesn't reverse the languages. He doesn't reverse tribes and nations and peoples. He says, no, let me cover all of this with my grace and mercy. And the greatest testimony to the saving work, the irresistible work of God in his creation, is that what starts as judgment is ushered into the throne room as a sign of his victory in the end. There's, there's no point in resisting God. He's going to win. 
There is no point in saying that because God has dealt with me this way, I am now beyond His reach. There is no reason to say that because God has disciplined or judged or made me miserable here, He is unable to make me happy and satisfied and content with Him. If God can take millions upon millions upon millions of people who are separated and scattered, who are disunified, who are hostile and aggressive to one another, and at the end of the day bring all of those people together in the throne room to share joy in the presence of God, what, what is too difficult for him? There ought to be then, as we go forward, there ought to be here at Edgewood and among all the local churches anywhere in the world, there ought to be a sort of relishing of differences in the body. Right? Because by nature, I don't gravitate to people who are different than me. By nature, I gravitate to people that I feel like I have something in common with. My age, my demographic, my education. But then you come to a place like this, and what we ought to be desirous of is saying, I look at these people, and these people, this is a mess. They don't look the same, they don't talk the same, they don't enjoy the same hobbies, they don't eat the same food, and we just smile and nod. Because greater than their differences is Christ who conquered us. And we have the opportunity now to give others a foretaste of what all of this world and creation is ultimately moving towards, which is unity under the lordship of Christ, worshiping together, finding our heart's desires satisfied in the same person and to the same end. I pray that happens here more and more. Let's pray. Father, how good and kind and patient you are with people who are sinful and stubborn and resistant by nature. Thank you that you have conquered us by your grace and that you have removed a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh that now can love you and can desire you in ways that we could not before. Father, in a world that is um, suffering from so much animosity and hostility, whether it's between nations and people groups or demographics or political parties or whatever it is, I pray that you would create here at Edgewood and among churches across this nation and world, that you would create a people of God who desire to be unified under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That that would be our heart's desire, that that would be our ultimate goal, that we would want to have a name that is attached to you rather than trying to make a name for ourselves. Do that, Father, out of your abundant kindness for us. Do that to make your son look great in the eyes of a watching world and do it in such a way that we know your spirit is at work in our midst. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray.
Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close uh, with a hymn that speaks of our allegiance to Jesus and how he loves us and one day how we'll be with him. Amen.